So now we open our Bibles together. We turn to that precious Word of God. And we continue in our studies in the first chapter of Genesis this morning. Genesis chapter 1, reading from verse 24. And reading about the fifth, rather the, um, the sixth day. And then the seventh day. It occurred to me this morning, no doubt it's not an original thought, but uh, God made man on the sixth day. And if the first day of the week is Sunday, then the sixth day of the week would be... Friday. Friday. And uh, here's a thought. The creation of man was completed on a Friday. And the redemption of man, too, by our Lord Jesus was on a Friday. So Friday is a rather significant day in many ways. But I'm sure that others have thought that and said that centuries before I did this morning. Anyway, let's read Genesis 1, 24 uh, onwards. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed, that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done 
in creation. If we could just look back to the end of chapter 1 and to verse 26 and verse 27 in particular this morning. Then God said, let us, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the livestock, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Well, on Sunday mornings, we are looking at the theme of foundations. What is a foundation? A foundation is what must be laid and laid securely in order for a building to stand. Dodgy foundation, wobbly foundation, cracked foundation, uncertain foundation, and down comes the building. And we thought a few weeks ago about a verse in Psalm 11 which asks a question. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And we are living at a time when the foundations of human life and society are being questioned, undermined, and overturned like maybe never before. Now is the time for us to re-examine and re-establish and restate what these safe foundations are. And we do so not by discussion, not by trawling the internet or, or, or watching various news channels or having a debate about it, but we do this by going to the Word of God, the only word of authority that speaks on every subject that matters to us. And today our question is one of the most important questions that you or I could ever ask. What does it mean to be human? What are you as a human being? Where do you come from? What are you here for? Do you matter? Where are you going? We can't answer all of these questions this morning. But we're looking today at a biblical answer to the question, what is it to be human? Let me make just one point before we start. When it says in verse 26, then God said, let us make man. Please understand that throughout this text and throughout my sermon this morning, the word man there means male and female. The Hebrew word ish is a word that can mean a man, a male person, a male adult, but it can also stand for, and Adam is the word actually used here, not ish, Adam. Adam means humanity, humanity as a species, as a race, if you like. People, male and female, are implied here. And there are three points we see this morning, as we usually do. The first of them is human dignity. And that's the main one. That's the controlling one. Human dignity. But from that, we see two other things. We see human dominion. 
And then we see, finally, human delight. You might be thinking, what does that mean? Well, you will discover if you have ears to hear and listen this morning. But we begin with human dignity. Now, we said last Sunday morning that the creation of man was the great climax, the great culmination of God's creation. It's what everything else was working towards, the climax and the crescendo. And what is the first great truth that we learn here about man, about humanity? Well, it is his dignity that man uniquely, uniquely is created in the image and likeness of God. And that is true of no other creature. No animal, no plant, no being on earth other than humanity is made in God's image and likeness. Now, we said last week that when God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, God made clear and definite distinctions. Day and night are distinct. They're not the same. Light and darkness are distinct. They are different. Land and sea are distinct. The sky and the land and the sea are all different. The various kinds of animals are distinct from each other. Birds and fish are not the same. Land animals, creeping things, they are, they are distinct kinds. But here is the great distinction, one of the greatest distinctions of all. Man, and again man, I mean male and female, is distinct from the animals because man is created in the image and in the likeness of God uniquely. Now, what does this mean? I could give a very, very long answer, but I will keep it as brief as I can. Human beings were made to be like God in certain respects. So you go to an art gallery and you see a portrait by Holbein or or Van Dyck or whoever it might be, Rembrandt, and you see an image and likeness of the original. That image has much in common with its original. It is a, an image and a likeness of the original person who sat for that picture. Or you go to a museum and you see a, a sculpture there. Or you go to, to Florence and you see Michelangelo's great sculpture of David. And that is the image and likeness of David or whoever it might be. We are made as the image and likeness of God. We have certain features which we have in common with our Creator and which animals do not share in. That is the important point to make. People talk about the intelligence of dogs and chimpanzees and dolphins and pigs, and I'm sure they are very intelligent, and you can watch the the dance of the honeybee or the migrating salmon or whatever it might be. They do amazing things. They have amazing instincts implanted in them by a wise creator. 
but they are not made in the image of God the way that you are and that I am and that all of us are, whether young or old. Now, what are these features? What does it actually mean to have the image of God? Well, again, I could give many answers. There isn't the time. We could talk about our minds. The human mind is astonishing. We could talk about our will, our our freedom, that unlike animals, we are not governed by instincts, that we can choose, that we can decide, that we can use our discretion and our discernment. We could talk about our emotions. We could talk about our expressions. We could talk especially about our speech. Now, there is something in humanity that is quite distinct from anything else in all creation, the human faculty of speech. It is infinitely different to the sounds and calls and cries and barks and meows and whinnies and bleatings of various animals. Our speech is part of the image of God in us. God who spoke created a speaking people. And there are so many other things we could mention. We'll come on later to our rule and our authority. But there is one feature in particular that is strongly suggested by the text itself. And I'm I'm asking this question, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? What is it to be human? Why are we as human beings different from every other Animal. I say other because I'm slightly falling into an evolutionary mindset there because I live in the 21st century. The animals are different to us. We are animated, we move, but we are not as the animals. All right. What do we notice particularly in the word of God here? God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And you notice straight away there's something very interesting there, isn't there? The plurals. God does not say, let me make man in my image, or even I will make man in my image. He says, let us make man in our image. What does he mean? Why does he speak in this way? Many, particularly Jewish scholars who have this text of Genesis, have struggled with this question over many, many centuries. And then some have said, well, he's speaking to the angels. He's speaking to the angelic beings. But nowhere do we read that the angels had any part in creating man. But for us who are Christians, there should really be no difficulty. Here is the first clue we have in the Bible, that there is a plurality of persons. There are persons within the one God. There is a hint here of what will be more fully revealed later on in the Bible, that the one God exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We are in Genesis chapter 1, and we are in verse 26 this morning for those joining us. Now, what are we saying about our God and the image of God in man? We're saying this. Our God is not mere oneness. He is not a solitary, isolated unit. 
He is not the Allah of Islam, who is severely, as it were, one, a monad, entirely alone. Our God is not like that. Our God is the God who says, us, our, and we. In our God, there is something precious that we might call society, community, relationship. And my friends, this is a vital part of God's image in man. Do you hear what I'm saying? Why at this point does God say, let us make man in our image? Well, for this reason. He creates man to be a social creature, a communal creature. And that is why loneliness is one of the great sadnesses of our society in particular. That there are many, many lonely people. I don't just mean they live alone. They may live with many other people around them. They may work with people around them. And yet they are lonely, and you might be lonely. And the God who said, let us make man in our image, created man, male and female, that we might not be lonely, but might be in community. Because our God, who speaks here as he does, He is, he exists, he lives, he moves in that eternal fellowship of love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's something more that I could not possibly miss adding at this point. As creatures made in God's image, we were not created only for fellowship with one another. We were intended for fellowship with the triune God himself. And isn't this, in some ways, the great plot, the great narrative of the whole Bible? Can you not detect in God's word here, I, we, am making a human race for myself, Not that I might simply sit back and stand back and be far above the clouds and look upon them with a kind of removed, grandfatherly kind of, aren't the people having a lovely time sort of delight, but that actually I might take them and embrace them and be with them and then be with me and know me and call on me and love me and I love them, that I will be their God and they will be my people and we will be united in covenant together. And is that not why the Son of God came into the world? That you and I and us together might actually become part of the community of God, the community of heaven, eternally with our God and Father, with our Savior in the Holy Spirit, now and forevermore. This is the dignity of the human race made in the image of God. Reflecting on this, I say that we are like God in many ways. We are. We've discussed that. Let's also say this, lest we blaspheme God. Our God is infinitely greater than we are, isn't he? He is not made in our image, but we are made in his image. He is the original 
We are derived from him. He is independent. We are dependent. And yet there is for us that unique nobility that we are made in the image and likeness of God. What a glorious, wonderful, revolutionary teaching this is. In an age where children and adults too are all told and it's all assumed that we simply evolved from lower forms of life. That the word of God who cannot lie tells us that that is not so and we are a special creation of God made in his image and likeness. There's something else that I have to say before going on to my next point. It's a simple point. It's a profound point. It's a most necessary point. God created one human race. There was at the beginning no separation into ethnicity, into nationality, or races. There were no such things. It is the consequence of sin that has brought about these divisions and all the problems that have come with them. It is the unbiblical and anti-Christian theory of Darwinian evolution that lends itself to various ideas about races. The notion that some races are inherently superior or inferior to others. The word of God gives that teaching no support. From the beginning it was never so. And is not so now. We were and are and remain one human race. There's the story of John Arlott, the cricket commentator in South Africa, entering to uh, cover the England-South Africa series of 1948, I believe. Apartheid had just been established in South Africa. And Arlott was asked to fill in his immigration form and to declare in the space-marked race what his race was. Was he black? Was he white? Was he colored? Was he Asian? What was he? And his answer was the best answer you can ever give. You know what it was, don't you? Human. There you go. The human race. There is one human race. Teaching about races in some kind of pecking order is not of the word of God. Human dignity in the image and likeness of God. And then from that, we come to a second point this morning. Human dominion. Now look now at verse 28 with me and see what it says there. Here God speaks and says to the man and the woman, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, what does this word dominion mean? Well, it's another word for rule, authority, headship, for being a king and a lord over this world. Mankind is to rule over the earth and everything 
in it. He is appointed to a place of authority and preeminence over this world. He doesn't take it to himself. He doesn't climb to the top of the evolutionary tree and to the top of the food chain and become king of the beasts by some kind of struggle. No, he is appointed by God the creator to this position of rule and authority over the earth. Man is to be lord over the animals. Who is the king of the beasts? It's not the lion. It's not the hyenas. It's man. And man is to be a steward. And that word steward, which I throw into the text, means somebody who leads, but who is appointed to a position of trust and responsibility by a higher authority. If you know your Tolkien, and we were watching a bit of Tolkien yesterday, some of us, uh, you may know that um, when, uh, when Gandalf gets to Minas Tirith uh, in the land of Gondor, there is somebody there who is ruling Gondor whose name is Denethor. But Denethor is not the king of Gondor, is he, James? No, he's only the steward of Gondor. Aragorn is the rightful king, and he will reign over Gondor. That's only an illustration for the Tolkien heads among us, of whom I might be one. But a steward is not an absolute ruler. He is under the authority of one who appoints him. Nevertheless, as a steward, he is to exercise that rule in the name of the one who appointed him. Now, there are again many, many applications we could bring from this text. Let me just give a couple. Do you see how it says in verse 28... God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue it. What does that word subdue mean? It means to bring the world under control and mastery, to use it, to shape it, to cultivate it according to our needs and our responsibilities. And what that means is, that activities like agriculture and horticulture, the cult- cultivating of gardens, animal husbandry, the taming of animals, wild habitats, even activities like mining, extracting materials from the earth and manufacturing and the building of towns and cities and roads and canals, These are part of our subduing of the world. They're part of what is sometimes called the cultural mandate. God says to man, rule the earth. Control the earth. Don't let the earth take over you. You are in charge of the earth in my name. The earth is not your master. You are masters of the earth. Now there is a widespread view, often expressed, which says that wild is good, cultivated is bad. The wilderness is natural and therefore it's better than cultivated fields or even a town or a city. And it's wrong to disturb any so-called natural habitat. Now this view is not really all that new. It goes back a long way. It certainly goes back at least 200 years. You can go back to some of the romantic poets like Wordsworth and and Blake 
And even later on, people like George Bernard Shaw and others, and they would have said the same thing. They would say, well, cities and towns and even farming and large-scale agriculture and certainly industry is bad. Dark satanic mills and all that kind of thing. Well, we could debate dark satanic mills another time, but we have to make this point. God instructs and appoints humanity to subdue the earth and to keep it under control. He is appointed Lord over the earth. The earth is not our master. We are to master the earth. Modern environmentalism puts the earth at the top. The mother earth over us all. And we're down here, we are, we are comparatively recent interlopers and invaders, and we have no place really. We should not come and disturb the earth. And as for God, he is hardly there at all in modern environmentalism, is he? Not really. Now we need to invert that order and be Christian environmentalists. We need to be biblical environmentalists in the sense that we say the earth matters. The responsible use of the earth's resources matters a great deal. We should listen to what people say about climate and so forth, but we need to get the order right. God is over all things. We are made in God's image to rule the earth, not to be ruled by the earth. Excuse me. But let me make a a second, more general application. This dominion which God gives to man is a command to us all to be responsible stewards in the work we are given to do, whatever that work might be. We are to be active, careful, wise, thoughtful stewards, servants of our Lord. We are to be responsible, accountable human beings, answerable to God, our creator. Now think about your life for a moment. Maybe your responsibilities are very great in work, in the home, in the family, in the church. Maybe your responsibilities only amount to getting up tidying your bedroom and getting your books in your bag for school and doing your homework. I say only. That's quite a lot to do, really, isn't it? And God says here, whatever your responsibilities are, undertake them responsibly. What does that word responsibly mean? You are responding to the one who calls you to be responsible. You are responding to the one who says, I have created you, whoever you are, however young you are, however old you are, to do certain things responsibly in the world, in the earth, in the home that I have given you. This is the dominion of mankind. Don't be overcome by the world. Don't say, the world is getting on top of me. Don't say, I, I, I can't control anything. I'm, I'm basically pushed around by circumstances. I, I can't control my environment. It's controlling me. No, we shouldn't let ourselves get into that state. We should say instead, what has God called me to do? Where are my responsibilities? Where do they begin? Where do they end? What are they? Let me do them. Because God 
holds me to account in them all. That is the dominion of mankind. But then there's a third and final point, which I mentioned at the beginning. Human delight. We began with human dignity. We went on to human dominion. And we now come to human delight. What does this mean, you're wondering? Well, look at verse 29. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Now, why do I say human delight? Because God placed man in a paradise, in a garden of delights. We see this in the provision of food for him. If you just look down to chapter 2 and to verse 8, you see there something elaborating on this. It says there in chapter 2, verse 8, that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, that is, towards the sunrise. And there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. It was a garden of delights. Not only was the food there to be fuel for the man's body, the food was there to be a joy to his eyes and to his nose and all his senses. Uh, the food tasted delicious. It looked beautiful. It was a wonderful garden. It was a place of every kind of delight. It was heaven on earth, if you will. It was paradise. Let's, for the time being, leave aside for another time, perhaps, the interesting observation that when man was created, he had a vegetarian diet, or shall we even say a fruit-based diet, one for discussion another day. But what we see this morning is particularly this. The existence of man at the beginning was happy, peaceful, blissful. The garden was a delight to all human senses. There was nothing there that was sad. There was nothing there that was ugly. There was nothing there that was unpleasant. There was nothing there that was irritating or frustrating or disappointing or painful. You didn't sting yourself on nettles or have wasps to come and sting you. There was nothing dangerous or frightening or threatening. There was nothing that was even boring there. Can you imagine a world where nothing is boring? That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? And such was the world that God made, the garden of delights. It was a home. It was a wonderful home. We've talked about human dominion. Dominion is man's work. Man was made to work, but man was also then made to rest, to enjoy what we call today downtime, his recreation, his enjoyment, his fun, 
was all part of that creation. And we need to add to this at this point, of course. It's not simply a matter of he. It's a matter of they. He and she. Notice that in verse 27, we have the record of man being made male and female. They delighted in this creation together. They delighted in the world They delighted in the garden. They delighted in one another. And next week, God willing, we come to this vitally important and controversial subject of male and female. But understand this. The man and the woman enjoyed everything in creation as it came from the hand of God. They knew that they received everything from him. And we know from chapter 3 that when the fall eventually came, whenever it was, whether it was very soon, as it might have been, or after some time, but that the Lord God was walking in the garden, wasn't he, in the cool of the day, which suggests to us that when the man and woman were first created and were walking that garden, the presence of God with them, walking with them in the garden, was something that they knew familiarly, regularly. They didn't say to each other, we've got this great garden. Where did it come from? I don't know. Maybe it sprang out from a big bang 15 billion years ago. Do you think that might have happened? They knew that didn't happen. They knew that God had given them this garden from his hand, a gift to enjoy richly and to say thank you, God, creator, that you've made this garden and you've made the trees and you've made the animals and you've made the stars and you've made the fruit and you've made me and you've made her and you've made her and you've made him and you've made everything. And to God be the praise and glory. That was the attitude they would have had in the garden. And now we're almost through. And we come to the necessary final word. We no longer live in a paradise of delights. Sometimes we feel that we do. Sometimes we get away on holiday maybe or we have a a day out or a short time in a place, in company, in an activity and we think, oh, this this is bliss. This is perfect. I'm enjoying this garden, not usually my own garden, but somebody else's garden in most cases, public gardens, a wonderful park, uh, a visit somewhere, an enjoyable activity, a round of golf or whatever, whatever takes your fancy. You, you go to somewhere and you think, I've had the best day ever. Oh, it's wonderful. This world really is perfect, isn't it? But then we soon come back down to earth with a big bump, don't we? We don't live in a paradise of delights any longer. The earth has been cursed and blighted by the sin of our ancestors and our own sin. Nature, as has been said, is red in tooth and claw. Lions and leopards and lambs and kids don't lie down together and graze on the same manicured lawn as once they did. No, there is bloodshed. There are predators and prey. 
There is pain and disease. There are thorns and thistles. There are earthquakes. And there are floods. And there is global warming. Take that as you will. And nature seems to threaten to overwhelm and dominate us. And the image of God in man, though it remains, has been marred and defaced by sin. Paradise is lost. How is it regained? Only through one man. Only through one Savior. Only through another Adam. Not the first Adam of whom we read here, but the last Adam. The second Adam. And this morning we've thought about the dignity of man as the image of God. And we've thought about the dignity of man in the dominion that he exercises. And we've thought about the image of God and the dignity of uh, the image of God in man in the delights that we enjoy. Well, just for a few seconds as we come to a close, consider Jesus. How does he measure up to all these things we've been talking about this morning? We read in Colossians 1 verse 15 that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Not us. Now as we are alone, corrupted, polluted, scarred, diseased, bound for death. Oh, the image is still there, but it's been scratched over and defaced and marred and spoiled and twisted and corrupted and perverted in every one of us since Adam first fell. But a new man comes. The Son of God, born of a virgin. A new creation who is, as Hebrews also says, the very express image of God. And who is this Jesus? He's also the one who has been given full dominion over heaven and earth. Didn't he say so when he was risen from the dead? All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. If that's not dominion, then what is? You read Psalm 8, which speaks of, uh, of, of man being made a little lower than the angels and then crowned with glory and honor. And it's taken in Hebrews chapter 2 to refer to Jesus Christ, the true man, the proper man, the real man, the man of men, the king of kings, the one who is above all things, reigning over heaven and earth. That's the man in whom paradise is restored. And he is also the one in whom we find supreme, everlasting delight and joy. We come to Calvary, and we come to that thief on the cross next to Jesus, who recognizes that Jesus is certainly somebody great, and more than that. He knows he's a king. He says to him, as 
As he's dying there, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I know you're a king. Quite what kind of king you are, I cannot say, but you are surely Israel's king, aren't you? And what does Jesus say to him? Truly, I tell you this day, you will be with me in paradise. Today, with me in paradise. What is paradise? What is paradise? Is it simply outstanding botanical zoological gardens, gastronomic delights, fruit and veg and all the rest of it? It's all these things, but paradise is nothing unless it's Jesus Christ himself there as its center, as the throbbing heart of paradise. He is our delight. What is a Christian? Somebody who's able to recite the bare facts that Jesus came and died for sinners and we can be saved by knowing him. A Christian believes all these things. But what is a Christian? Someone who says, Jesus, I find everything in you I'm looking for. Jesus, Jesus, all sufficient. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. We find him and we don't let go of him because he won't let go of us. He becomes our bridegroom and he holds us tight and he sought us and found us and he keeps us and he loves us and we realize that he is our paradise. The one who is our delight. The one exalted to dominion and authority over heaven and earth the one who is the true, unspoiled, pure, unspotted, unmarked image of God in the face of man. Our God becomes man permanently in Jesus. And if your faith and hope are in him, you and I together are being transformed day by day and hour by hour into that same image. That is our destiny if we are children of the living God. Let's have time to think and to pray together. Let's be quiet for a few moments. We find in you, Lord Jesus Christ, that perfection that even Eden did not possess. We know that in Eden, our race, our one race, very quickly sinned and fell and became marred and corrupted like the marred potter's clay. And, O Lord, had you only left us in that state and condition, we would have all been discarded as unworthy and useless and worse, as even offensive and abominable in your sight. But, O Lord God, you looked upon a fallen people in mercy and kindness and determined to send your Son the true image of the infinite. Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made 
man. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. O Lord our God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Our hearts incline towards you. O come to us, speak to us. Move us, change us. Draw us out in deeper love and service and adoration and desire to know and follow you with all our hearts. We ask this now in his name. Amen.